I've got thoughts on sonar is all that I'm saying. Is I got some I got some hot takes. Yes, there's mouse models all it's mouse models all the way down. Wow, I did not know that. Freely Filtered, the twice-a-month podcast that summarizes and pontificates on the most recent NefJ Journal Club. NefJ is the Twitter Nephrology Journal Club, where nephrologists meet in social media to discuss the articles that are driving nephrology forward. This podcast is for educational entertainment purposes only and is not intended to give medical advice. You should talk to your doctor before making any medical decisions. This podcast discusses off-label and unlicensed medication. This is not medical advice. If you have questions, see your doctor or subscribe to UpToDate. They know what they're talking about. My name is Joel Toff, but most people know me better as Kidney Boy. And I'm joined by Samira. Hey, everyone. I'm Samira Farouk, a transplant nephrologist at Mount Sinai in New York City. Jenny. My name is Jenny Lin. I'm a physician scientist at Northwestern University. Swapno. Hi, I'm Swap, short for Swapnil Hiremat. I'm a nephrologist and epidemiologist at the University of Ottawa. Matt. Matt. Matt, are you here? Oh, okay. No Matt this week. Before we start the discussion, I have an opening statement. When I was a young attending, one of my first roles as a PI was on the Ascend trial for avocentin. So this was a, uh, a first-generation endothelin antagonist. I remember I enrolled one of my own CKD patients. This is a guy who I've been taking care of for a while. He had GFRs in the low 30s, high 20s range, and he was sick, but he was kind of he was pretty stable, right? He'd been in that that late CKD stage three, early CKD stage four for a few years, uh, but he had heavy proteinuria, and I just knew that he was headed towards dialysis eventually. And I thought, hey, maybe maybe if we get him on this endothelin antagonist, we can delay that. And literally within weeks of being enrolled and randomized, his GFR just crashed. And just a few weeks later, he was on dialysis. And that was the moment it all came crashing down. And I understood what it meant to be giving patients unlicensed medications, that these are investigational drugs. And we don't know everything that's going to happen. That's the whole point of the study. And it was a real, it was a, it was a turning point for me in just understanding the gravity of what it means to be a PI and how careful you need to be with patients and how much trust patients put in you when you do these studies. My next run-in with endothelin antagonists was in the second NFJC ever. This was way back in May of 2015. And we looked at actually this very same compound as part of the RADAR trial. And the RADAR trial was a kind of a, a proof of concept. It was very short term. The endpoint was only looking at proteinuria. And I think everybody was pretty cynical about, you know, that proteinuria was not a significant outcome, that we really needed to see uh, hard patient outcomes. But even then, sonar was deep in the planning stages. So a lot of what we talked about during that first or that second FJC ever was, boy, won't it be exciting when we finally have the real data from sonar. So it's kind of wild to finally be here and having these results and being able to talk about them. FYI, for that second FJC, we had 23 people join the chat, and there were a total of 268 tweets. For this time when we talked about sonar, we had 170 people participate, and we had almost 900 tweets. We've come a long way. It was May 2014, not 2015. So that's five years ago. And to just, and to just keep some things into perspective, 
sonar was being planned and probably had started when we discussed radar but it took 5 years you know trials take a long long time yeah these trials yeah they take they take a, a long time i remember taking talking to uh, vlado then and he was really excited about the trial design for sonar and i think that and actually a lot of people are real excited about this trial design so is that swapped are you talking about the methods Yes that's right I'm talking about the methods and and the Google Hangout that we did I think it was you and Paul and uh, Vlado Vlado was actually at uh, a hotel somewhere traveling uh, as he usually is uh, and probably for a meeting to discuss and plan uh, either sonar or credence or something the hangout that uh, swapno was talking about is when we first started fjc the week after fjc we would talk with the authors about their study and it was kind of like a proto freely filtered but it it was difficult to sustain it was really difficult to get the authors to come and to join us and to get people to meet and it kind of fell by the wayside but that one in particular was quite good and it, honestly if every one of them had been as good as vlado had been on that one i think we would have kept doing it he he was awesome yeah he was awesome and he's been awesome uh, ever since so he's been an early supporter of nfjc that discussion really stands up because it's the same compound and he's clearly he's very active in setting up or uh, getting sonar off the ground and you can see he's got a lot of uh, very sophisticated knowledge about it it's very interesting in terms of disclosures i am involved in i am the site pi so i'm not really a site investigator for a trial of another endothelin antagonist called aprocitantan which is being used for hypertension for resistant hypertension it's an ongoing study which is just taking off you know it i think it's interesting like it's easy to paint with a broad brush these endothelin antagonists but we need to remember like these are drugs that are now licensed and in the clinic for pulmonary hypertension it's not like this is a class of drugs that's never been been able to be proven or approved these drugs have been successful for specific indications right i think bosentan has yeah bosentan i think is approved uh, though i haven't used it personally of course and uh, there's another one called spirsentan that one was with uh, removed from the market and is no longer being pursued commercially there actually are several phase 2 phase 3 trials of mm-hmm. various endothelial receptor antagonists for different cancers uh, prostate cancer renal cell carcinoma all of those trials ended up being negative but been studied for at least the last 10 15 years in the oncology space marketed under the name Zinlay for prostate cancer. Wow, I did not know that. Yeah, the most recent one that I saw was in 2015, which was a phase 2 trial for um patients with advanced renal cell. Yeah, is there supposed to be anti-angiogenic effects? So if you're able to cut off the blood supply and the lymphatic flow to tumors, that could be, you know, a mechanism for treating some of these malignancies. I wanted to share a couple words about sonar the inspiration for the acronym of this trial which is sound navigation ranging so just for some background it's the system for detecting objects underwater by measuring the water's depth and then eventually sound pulses are emitted and actually active sonar can lead to mass strandings of marine animals and there was actually a supreme court case a few decades ago which was the navy versus the natural resources of defense council and the Defense counsel actually lost and the court reasoned that the public interest in conducting naval training was okay even though there's irreparable damage to marine life. So, something I definitely did not know before looked into this a little bit more. Not just you, I don't think anyone else here knew that. <laughs> <laughs> so, sonar is not as fun and benign as it sounds. Well, we certainly found that out in this trial. Cautionary tale. Uh, and like you said though, Joel earlier today with the Evocentan and Ascent experience, these drugs are um, they are not homeopathic drugs, let's put it that way. 
they they have strong effects uh, and the whole point is to find a niche where they can have some effect which is beneficial without having an effect that is harmful at the same time my patient ended up crashing and ended up with end stage kidney disease but most of the patients the problem with the study and the reason it was halted early was heart failure was the reason they stopped it, fluid overload and heart failure. Perfect. And I think that's a good segue to the methods. Uh, but before delving deep into Sonar's methods per se, I would like to add a few lines or, or a little bit about uh, these adaptive trials. So, yeah, I mean, they call it an enrichment trial, but it falls under the broad umbrella of adaptive trials. And we'll add a few links to the show notes. Uh, we had adaptive trials go against pragmatic trials on Neff Madness a few years ago. Perry Wilson wrote up a nice introduction about that. We also, I also talked about that at KidneyCon and I'll link the tweet thread about it. But the the easiest way to think about adaptive trials is they do make everyone nervous because you change the rules as the trial is progressing, which makes people a little bit worried. Uh, But they are the hot new things, right? Perry was very disappointed that adaptive trials lost out in F-Madness. And there are many types of adaptive trials. This is kind of an enrichment trial where you're trying to select a patient population which is of benefit. And one uh, nice way to think about the enrichment phase is, uh, let's, let's say you're trying to treat anemia. And this is before you knew that anemia is caused by iron or vitamin b12 deficiency or folate deficiency and if you were trying to treat anemia and you gave vitamin b12 to everyone with anemia you may not actually see a benefit at all right Uh, because you don't know that the pathogenesis of anemia is from b12 deficiency on the other hand if you use b12 levels as a biomarker and say hey i will only give this molecule that i have without knowing that it's b12 for example to patients who have low B12 levels or patients who have, say, macrocytosis, then your trial is more likely to be positive, right? So you're not choosing all patients with anemia. You're choosing a subset of patients with anemia who are going to respond to the therapy that you're giving. Uh, Now, in this case, of course, we don't have a biomarker for choosing patients who are going to respond to atrasentan. So what they are doing is they're choosing patients and giving atrasentan and seeing if they do have some kind of response in the form of reduction of proteinuria. And only in those patients, you're going ahead with the trial. That's the analysis analogy that I'm trying to draw, trying to minimize the side effects of atrasentan, so avoiding giving it to patients who don't seem to have any benefit in the run-in period. Joel, you have a question? Well, they also had, they did have a biomarker, right? They re- restricted entry criteria based on uh, BNP. Uh, brain natriuretic peptide, right? Right, right. So so this is for benefit, I was saying, but they did restrict by the side effects as well. So just, you know, rather than go into each of the inclusion and exclusion criteria, let's talk about it a little bit broadly uh, for understanding purposes. So they had a GFR criteria, yes, 25 to 75 and after the first few patients were um, enrolled uh, after about 300 patients were enrolled then they tried to keep the GFR uh, less than 60 and and they needed proteinuria so the urine ACR had to be between 300 to 5000 so again choosing patients who are extremely proteinuric with diabetic nephropathy but like Joel uh, mentioned they needed to have an albumin greater than 2.5 so not those who are severely hypoalbuminemic and they had to have a BNP level less than 200 so again the BNP here is to exclude patients who are at high risk of volume overload and heart failure and having the kind of experience that uh, Joel's patient ascent had so those were the inclusion criteria but on addition to that uh, they also needed to be on a diuretic so they were, if they were already on a diuretic and they were on a good dose of the maximal tolerated uh, daily dose of a diuretic they went directly to the end of the run-in period but if they were not on a diuretic they had to be started on a diuretic and then they would enter the run-in phase so so it's not that uh, you know they tried really really hard to have patients who would be at lower risk of heart failure and they had to get a diuretic despite having a low BNP. 
Yeah, and that's kind of strange to me. So the BNP criteria did not really alarm me. Um, looking back, I was trying to see other studies to see like for a typical CKD patient, what would be an average or median BNP? And there's a study from C. Jason in 2008 looking at this and characterizing it. And the median BNP was 59 with a range of 19 to 137. So I think for your ambulatory CKD patient, this might actually be reasonable, but the diuretic portion is one that doesn't quite make as much sense to me in terms of being maximized or optimized on a diuretic, especially if their BNPs were low. Right. I think they're just trying to avoid heart failure at all costs because that's that's such a known predictable side effect of these drugs. You know, it's interesting, but they screened 11,000 patients and 5,400 were excluded. Is that, is that unusual to have half the patients excluded? It's not completely unusual, but it's not it's not a pragmatic trial by any chance, right? In, in pragmatic trials, you try to increase the external validity, the generalizability, if I said it right, uh, generalizability uh, of the trial by including all comers. Yeah, now you're just showing off. You were the only person who could pronounce it last time, and now you're just showing off again. Come on. Generalizability. <laughs> yes, oh, yes, Samira. Winner. Yes, another yes. Winner. I'm not even going to make a fool of myself this month. <laughs> so so uh, this is the exact opposite, right? So this is not a trial which is generalizable. It, it's a trial which is for a specific subset of a population. So, so that is... Uh, it's not all trials are not like this, but this is a specific property of this trial. So it's it's completely understandable. The way they set it up, this is what you expect to see. Jumping ahead partly to the results, there is even a further drop off from the enrolled to the people who actually entered the trial. And that's because they had they went through this enrichment period and the run-in period. So in case they had uh, either they did not have a reduction in proteinuria or they developed any signs of volume overload, they were out. So that screens out patients who are going to have any sort of side effects and it keeps patients who are potentially going to be of benefit. Uh, and if I didn't mention it before, they did have to be on a renin-angiotensin system blocker at baseline. That was one of the inclusion criteria. Right. And it's actually a pretty frightening number of people, right? So they had 5,100 start the open label and only 2,600 were randomized to the double blind. I mean, they lost half of, the, half of their people that met all the inclusion criteria, right? Exactly. So a bunch of patients were non-responders of more than a thousand patients or so uh, a bunch of them you know 258 for example had uh, during the open label part where all of them got at resentan about 258 had adverse effects some of them of course withdrew consent but about 800 patients were non-responders and about 258 had adverse effects so what about the thousand or so who are non-responders who were included that was part of the trial right the idea was there were people that were non-responders and they're like well what happens to them if they take the drug, do they still get a benefit? Is proteinuria not an appropriate intermediate outcome? Biomarker. Right. Proteinuria reduction. Biomarker, right. Yeah. Right. So this is the only time I've ever seen this study done. Here are people that did not reduce their proteinuria in that first six weeks open label, still continued on the drug. And here we can finally see, you know, how good how good is proteinuria at predicting outcomes? Exactly. So you're right. There were 1,800 who were non-responders. 1,000 were still, you know, they got the uh, a double blind atrocentan or placebo, but about 800 were excluded. Uh, and I'm not sure what was the decision behind, you know, which ones would be included and which ones would be excluded. Right. Hopefully that 1,000 out of those 1,800 were randomized. Yeah, they were they were randomized, but they don't comment um, swap analysis 
said about how they those thousand that were randomized versus the 800 who were not included right, exactly. right, right. so during the run-in period you know if they got severe peripheral edema uh, any documented diagnosis of heart failure liver enzymes going up anemia anemia which also is a common side effect with the hemoglobin dropping down to less than nine so the supplement actually i can't you know explain anything without talking about <laughs> supplements so so the, the the supplementary data has actually far better explanation of the inclusion and exclusion criteria than the uh, main paper has so moving on to the so the randomization and the rest of the stuff of the trial is pretty standard boilerplate the dose of atrocentan used was 0.75 milligram a day uh, and only one dose was used coming to the outcomes sorry before you get to the outcomes we have we need a second on capsulology here yes uh, of course so um so actually unfortunately there's no um images i could find of of the um the study drug all they say is that the placebo was packaged identically with uniform appearance labeling and odor so sadly i don't have anything more to share about that but they do say that it was designed to look exactly the same smell and taste and everything thank you that is <laughs> a very useful tidbit it's popular on twitter it is extremely popular <laughs> after that capsulology capsule the outcomes so the primary outcome was a renal one so a, a composite outcome of doubling of serum creatinine onset of end stage kidney disease which is you know a gfr less than 15 a kidney transplant uh, or death from kidney failure uh, so a composite of those three things and they had a bunch of secondary more, i'm sorry one more time what was the primary outcome so doubling of serum creatinine onset of end stage kidney disease which is defined as chronic dialysis for more than 90 days a kidney transplant a gfr less than 15 or death from kidney failure. Okay, so this is kind of our classic renal IDNT definition of outcome. Exactly. So uh, in radar it was a proteinuria reduction, right? So th- in this case this one was a real outcomes that matter. Uh, and then they had a bunch of secondary outcomes you know, including some cardiology uh, outcomes, the mace outcomes uh, and proteinuria. and they looked at the adverse effects very closely so time to hospital admission for heart failure and they had a uh, an independent committee looking at all this so the usual stuff you know i won't bore you with all those details the rest of the stuff was pretty good now far as far as sample size is concerned they had uh, estimated that they would get 425 events so this was like credence before this was an event driven trial so they were looking for 425 events and uh, they expected a 27% risk reduction which would give them 90% power you know and, and this is what i think christos on on twitter commented uh, in his typical acerbic fashion about saying this patient selection wasn't wasn't a good thing is that the event rate was very low so they realized that the event accrual was so slow that it would take forever for them to get 425 patients so they decided to stop the trial before even the uh, interim analysis was done and at the completion of the trial they had 184 events so less than half of the 425 that they expected to have so how close were they to the first dsmb evaluation like they went 2.2 years right yeah that that was the median follow up 2.2 years so how, how long were they going to wait before they were going to uh, take a look and see if they were harming people i mean especially with a drug that you think may be harming possibly could be harming people i think if i were designing this trial i would have wanted to check with the dsmb pretty early maybe with a quarter of the outcomes no but that, so that is different right so if there is a signal of greater harm they can decide to stop the trial anytime so that that data is coming but to them in real DS, time DSMB but this is doesn't 
They don't. They don't look at the data continuously, do they? No, but if there is a signal of harm, uh, you know, there is study monitoring is going out, uh, is going on all the time. The interim analysis is different. The interim analysis is done at you know when a certain number of events are accrued. In this case, you know, for example, it may have been two um, hundred events or whatever, and at that time they decide whether the study should proceed or should stop, even on the basis of efficacy. To me, that to me is important. Like, how close were they to the first point where they were going to look and see if this drug was working? Or not. They don't really say exactly when the interim analysis was going to be done. They do say that it was before um, the planned interim analysis was done. And we just don't know how much. Yeah. Now, you know, usually these are done when either you've got 50% of the events or two thirds of the events. So, you know, with 425, it may have been at 200 or uh, 300 events or so. And they stopped at 184. Is there, is there a reason you're so uh, worried about this part? Yeah, it bothers me that these guys, they threw away the drug. They they abandoned their study based on this power calculation that they weren't going to hit. And it looks like it's an effective drug, right? It's just like, it just like they, they walked away from something that was working and they didn't even know it. It just kind of kills me. And it just, and it feels so slap shod that they, they called it. They're like, okay, this is not going to work. The event accrual is way too slow. We're done. Okay, let's stop it. Now let's see what the results show. Oh, the effect size is actually way greater than we predicted. And so we actually have a significant result with a smaller number of outcomes. Oh, we really should have continued the study. That would have been neat to, to know if it was going to work. That, that's true. Um, and, I, and again, it's what I said about the, what do we owe our patients? When we enroll them in a trial, it just, it, feel, it feels like a betrayal. The patients that, were, that you know, trusted you and said, okay, I'll take an experimental drug. They might cause heart failure. They might cause some untoward side effect that I don't know about. And uh, some accountant in a room who I never met the patient says, nah, it's not going to work based on this power analysis that we did. Shut the whole thing down. No, absolutely. So it's not an accountant, probably. It's something more than that because these trials are multi-million dollars. I bet he's got a green shade and he's got a lamp and he's got a pencil <laughs> behind the ear. I bet. <laughs> Uh, but 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 you know uh, let's step back like this it, it looked like uh, maybe this trial took five years so far like we talked about uh, the five year aspect though the median follow up was two point two years but you know at, at the event accrual rate they would have taken maybe you know ten years more to finish the trial this drug would be long done uh, you know out of patent and all that no but they didn't need to hit that they didn't need to hit that event rate right like if they made it to you know if they had made it to that interim analysis uh, you think they may have continued if they had made it to that interim analysis they would have been saying oh actually the effect size is twice as a, as as large as we expected right and not twice 50% bigger right so instead of a 27% mm-hmm. it was like a 36% or 38% reduction in the primary outcome right Th- yeah 34% yeah and instead of the 27% we thought it was going to be and so we don't need to get 400 and some odd events I don't know. It just yeah, it, but it seems like yeah, it seems like the company is is in trouble even otherwise. Like AbbVie and uh, another company called Allergan are merging because they are both doing so poorly. They don't have any new products coming out of the market, so they may have been. Well, there's a reason they don't have a new product because this one's not going to finish this one. Uh, and since we are talking about AbbVie, the the study was funded by AbbVie, which is a maker of Atrocentan. If we look at the role of the funding source, there are a few interesting lines in the Lancet. So the funder participated in the study design, data collection, data analysis 
Sims data interpretation and reviewing and approving the manuscript, but was not involved in the writing of the report. They say that despite the fact that two of the authors are uh, AbbVie employees, uh, employers employees of the funder reviewed the manuscript and gave suggestions for important intellectual content and approved the manuscript, uh, but they did not have critical comments on the interpretation or conclusion. So they gave suggestions, but they did not have critical comments. I'm not sure how you decide what is a suggestion and what is a critical comment. Anyway, so that's all I had to say on the methods. Uh, all right, I can... Uh pull us into the results. Uh, so just to quickly review the numbers, I think we mentioned some of them. So overall, 11,000 patients were screened, about half of those were excluded, 5,000 initially entered the enrichment period, and only about 4,700 made it to the end of that. Of these, ultimately, 2,600 were randomized, and these were the responders, so they had a reduction of their albuminuria by 30% or more during the enrichment period. And so these were the individuals that were randomized to the atrocentin group or the placebo. Um, and so as we briefly mentioned, there also was a subset of around a thousand non-responders who did not achieve this albuminuria reduction, but also had no evidence of significant fluid retention. And they were also randomized to the two groups. So this patient population... So I just let's just be very explicit. So what we've done is we have created a group that we know is responding to the drug and not having any adverse events. That's who we're going to test, right? This is a Correct. this is a this is a group that trialist designers would be salivating to get, right? We've they've taken the drugs for six weeks. They haven't not having any adverse effects or any of the major adverse effects, and they've taken the drug for six weeks, and we've seen real changes, it, probably in their glomerular structure, showing that the drug is working. Right, because the proteinuria is down 30%, which is, uh, I mean, we're not talking about a small amount. That's a huge event, especially in just six weeks. Right, right. But on the other hand, uh, there are people like um, Christos, again, uh, has mentioned that, you know, by excluding patients who had a high-ish BNP, you know, maybe it wasn't high. Maybe you're excluding the patients who are at highest risk and who would potentially have uh, the highest benefit uh, even more. So so by excluding patients who are at high that risk, may be the very maybe reason, they excluded patients who are going to have a lot of events. And, so and perhaps that's why the event rate they may said, be... They, they, they got rid of all the sick people. Exactly. And, and you know, right. severe hypertension and a bunch of other uh, exclusion criteria. So maybe the sickest, the sickest of the patients were excluded because they had a lot of adverse events. But maybe those are the patients who may have had a benefit with some better treatment of the adverse events. This is all speculation. I plugged in kind of a typical patient in this study into the Tangri risk formula, and their event rate was about half what was predicted by the Tangri risk formula for a two-year event rate. It's a little bit it's a little bit difficult because I don't know if they were North America or not. And I had and I had to, I said they were male, not female, but whatever. It was, it was an attempt. All right, I'll move us into uh table I know one. I, 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 <laughs> I, I stunned you with my creativity. You guys are all thinking, Toss, why didn't I think about that? That was a good idea. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's right. Smart guy. It's all right. That's what happened to me after I shared my capsule and my marine mammal story. So <laughs> <laughs> I, I was waiting for the bat story. Everybody's super <laughs> excited about Batman, and you had to bring. You were talking about dolphins. I want to know about echolocation. Okay. <laughs> um, so table one: um, Who are these patients? Um, average age was sixty-four years in both groups. Seventy-five uh, percent men. About half of these were white. Thirty-four percent Asian. Only about six percent. Um, black patients. The uh, creatinine was 1.7 and the uh, albuminuria was 800 milligrams per gram overall. So as we had already mentioned, the median follow-up for these patients was 2.2 years. So I'll just jump right into the primary composite endpoint, which was the composite of doubling of serum creatinine, onset of end-stage kidney disease, kidney transplant, or start of dialysis. 
So the hazard ratio for this was 0.65, with it being 8% in the placebo group and 6% in the atrocentin group. And so this hazard ratio did not cross one, gave us a p-value of 0.005, giving us a significant outcome and about a 35% um, reduction in the um, primary Endpoint. Um, so looking at the end-stage kidney disease outcome individually occurred in 6% of the placebo group, 5% of the atrocentin group. That hazard ratio did not reach statistical significance with a hazard ratio of 0.7. And the doubling of serum creatinine outcome was 6% in the placebo group, 4% in atrocentin um, with a hazard ratio of 0.61. Um, so, I mean, I think, you know, as we discussed, this drug shows some efficacy, the primary composite endpoint being clearly significant. Yeah, so the, uh, the, the fragility index is one. Can, can, you, can you tell us a little bit about the fragility index? Right, you ask me just as I close that window. So the fragility index, so it was described by Mike Walsh and a bunch of other people from McMaster. They looked at many different ways to see if, if a trial results are fragile. Fragile meaning, you know, if perhaps a few events were uh, not in the intervention, but in the rather than the control, they were in the intervention. If flipping a few events from here to there, does that really make the p-value different? So what this means, yeah, what this means if there was one less event in the control group uh, and one more event instead in the intervention, intervention group, the p-value would have been uh, more than 0.05. Now, of course, that is the dichotomanic, you know, as Frank Harrell would say, it's getting stuck on the p of 0.05, uh, which, you know, people are trying to move away from. But still, you know, as long as that is an accepted threshold, it just means that this was a very, very fragile uh, result, uh, uh, one event the other way, and the p-value would have been more than 0.05. So the higher the index, the more fragile it is? And the, the, the less fragile, yeah. So if, if, if the fragility index was 50, that means you need to have 50 less events in the intervention, you know, in the control got group it, and 50 okay. more. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So one is, you know, close to zero. So one is pretty, it's bad. Right. But this And this is the very thing that's going to be problematic in a study that stopped early, right? Like they didn't hit their power calculation. We know it's underpowered study and it's positive and you know, to me, the the whole problem is like, you know, if they had just pressed on and you kind of, I kind of feel like if AbbVie had been told, yeah, it's a positive trial, the stuff works, but we need to, we need to a little bit more validity than we're going to yeah. get if we stop now. We need to go on until our yeah. first, uh, until, until your DSMB says it's okay to stop, which, you know, they may have gone on. I don't know, you know, I don't know the finances of AbbVie. I don't know what, what went into that decision-making, but it, it, I, in my heart, I kind of feel like if they had known what they had on their hands, they would have, they wouldn't have stopped. I, I, my guess is it was they were shocked to find right because they predicted how strong this drug would be, and it ended up being stronger than that. The hazard ratio for their renal outcome is the same as the hazard ratio we were doing a dance about with Credence, right? It's a 0.65. That's exactly what we found in Credence. We were going, we were just delighted. We couldn't, we couldn't hold our joy in. And here's a drug that has just as strong of a hazard ratio. Now, you know, of course they teed up the population they were studying in a way that is very, right? Like I don't, you know, how powerful are ACE inhibitors if you only include patients that don't run into trouble, don't bump their creatinine, don't get hyperkalemic, have a 30% reduction in proteinuria after six weeks, right? Like that's a, you're, you're really teeing up the population for having the best possible outcomes, but uh, it, it's still, it's an impressive result. Yeah, but, but you look at the number of, you know, you talked about the hazard ratio. If you look at the absolute number of events, it's 26 less events in 26 out of how many? 5,000? Uh, 1,300. 1,300 and 1,300. 2,600, yeah. 26 cases in yeah. just two years. It's 26 cases in yeah. two years. 
Right? It's not yeah. that long. But let's look at the adverse effects then. You know, if that 26 is the benefit, what was the increase in the adverse events? Yeah, what was the increase of the adverse events? So the adverse events was uh, 36% had any serious adverse event in the atrocentin group compared to 326 in the placebo. So that gives you a P of 0.049. And if we break that down, there were 4.4% uh, deaths in the atrocentin group compared to 3.9 in the placebo group. And then most importantly, the fluid retention. So that was 36.6% versus 32.3. Heart failure was 6% versus 4%. And then there was significantly more anemia, almost 20% versus 10%. So yeah, I think the adverse effects are definitely big concern here. Absolutely. What do you say to that? No, that's a, yeah, that's a problem. That, ane- that anemia result is a problem. What, what defined anemia for them? 18%. Yeah, I, I think it's the hemodilution, right? Isn't that the theory for the anemia? Uh, that's, yeah. that's one theory. And there's also a theory that the endothelial receptor um, has a role in eruptosis or basically death of the red blood cell and that blocking the receptor may actually in, lead to unopposed eruptosis. And so that may also be contributing to anemia. What, what was their definition of anemia? I, gotta, I need to pull that up. Swap, I bet that's in the supplement. Go look at your supplements. <laughs> it, it is not in the supplement. It's probably in, in, in the manual of procedures. <laughs> but, but, you know, look at the, the heart failure stuff, right? It's, they, they excluded patients with a high MBNP. They excluded patients who had a weight gain or, or any symptoms in the running period. All of them had to be on a diuretic. Despite that, you saw these kind of results. It's 13 people. So, oh, wait. Oh, there's weight. There's both congestive cardiac failure and cardiac failure. Oh, that's right. a tricky move, splitting uh, those up. And there's hypervolemia, yeah, and there's hypervolemia or fluid retention, which is about 57 people more. Oh, that's, that's weird. And they also looked at the heart hospital admission specifically for heart failure. So the total number of events was 47 versus 34, so th- like 3.5% versus 2.5%. I'm not a big fan of endothelin antagonists. I mean, I had that personal experience with it. And, uh, and so this, this fits with my preconceived notions that these are, these are dangerous drugs. And that's interesting. Even in a very selected population and a very controlled study, they were having these types of problems. One of the articles that I pulled up when I was thinking about the study was, uh, David Gerling's study on the rates of hyperkalemia after publication of the RALS trial. Are you guys familiar with this study? RALS gets, I don't know, published in like 1998, 1999, showing that low doses of spironolactone in stage four heart failure have this remarkable improvement in mortality. You know, immediately everybody starts using spironolactone. I think it's the first time spironolactone becomes like, you know, becomes a super interesting uh, drug. And so uh, Gerlink goes and looks at database, looking at uses of the drug and then admissions for hyperkalemia. And the prescription rate goes from 34 per thousand prior to the publication to 149 per thousand after publication, right? Just this drug explodes in popularity and rate of hospitalization for hyperkalemia goes from 2.4 per thousand patients to 11 per thousand patients. And people dying of hyperkalemia went from 0.3 to 2 per thousand patients. So it's just this, you know, we see these results that are published in trials and these trials are very carefully monitored and patients are get you know post spironolactone potassiums checked and adjusted and then once the drug is out there people go crazy and they don't monitor it carefully and they don't select patients carefully and you get lots of harm yeah you know what is that that is called it means that the trials results are not generalizable <laughs> 
generalizable. I, generalizable. I, I, I know what it's called. <laughs> I can't say it. So swap. Like, I know you gave a little introduction on, you know, pragmatic trials, but do you think ethically pharmaceuticals should just be, you know, shelling out the money to do pragmatic trials? They will not. You, you know, they will not, right? Because the. Well, we know they are yeah. not, but in terms of uh, research ethics. Yeah. So, so pragmatic trials are slightly different because you're not testing whether a drug works. You're testing if implementation of that policy of prescribing a drug works, right? So for example, um, uh, one of the pragmatic trials we are doing is looking at, it's not a drug, we are looking at salt reduction. So, you know, DASH, for example, DASH was a efficacy trial. It, patients were actually given the food. They, they In the DASH trial, people came into the study center, they were fed breakfast, they were fed the lunch, and they were given a box with the dinner to take home. That trial's results are... Joel, they are not generalizing uh, because we <laughs> so so you can't you can't do that in real life, right? Uh, so you can't give people food for the rest of their life. So that's why the duration of Dash was four weeks. It wasn't four years, and the outcome was blood pressure. Uh, but what we are trying to do in this pragmatic trial is to give people advice. So we give them advice saying, hey, this is how you reduce salt. And then we are seeing if that has the same impact. And I bet it's not, we are not going to get the same results as a DASH is. So why would a pharmaceutical company go for a pragmatic trial, which invariably, because the patient selection is, you know, it's broader uh, and the effect size you're going to get is smaller. They are not going to go for a pragmatic trial. And I argue that you should not because what you're trying to see is, does the drug work? And a pragmatic trial is not uh, right design to find out for a phase three study. Uh, it's more of a you know a health policy is implementation what is the best way to implement you know prescription of this drug or, or prescription of this management algorithm that's sort of what a pragmatic trial is yeah but i guess like then before fda approval should we have pragmatic trials so we know exactly you know, who to give this to uh, and that that's a fascinating thought and a, a bunch of people are saying that vinay prasad has been saying that that that's the kind of trial that should be done in oncology and that's sort of pushing back against the fda way which is like trying to approve drugs faster and faster I don't think it's a coincidence that the disease that we have endothelin antagonist license for, which is pulmonary hypertension, which is very prominently symptomatic, right? These patients are dysmic and can't live their lives at all. You approve the drug there where you can have a marked measurable effect where diseases like hypertension, like you're studying or diabetic nephropathy, where you're slowing the progression of a disease that's largely asymptomatic, that we need to have a higher barrier there, right? Like we're not improving these patients' quality of life by giving them the drug unless they don't hit that final endpoint, which is dialysis, which of course is a disaster. And we don't want anybody to do that. But short of that, it's just you're just acquiring more and more uh, adverse events in the hope of avoiding one big adverse event. I forgot to mention that in the results. And this is something that I think did not make it to our NFJC summary, but it should is, is another supplementary figure this time. There's only one supplementary figure. It's a figure S1. Uh, it's actually the subgroup, uh, and I didn't see that until I said, hey, let's look at the supplement before the podcast. Uh, and this is actually the, the S1 figure is really nice. So it's it's a forest plot of, you know, you see that during any uh, subgroup analysis. And, and often uh, our refrain is not to over-interpret subgroups. Uh, because, you know, you're slicing and dicing the data in many different ways. But that is, they don't give interaction p-values in this, but I'll just read out a few hazard ratios in the subgroups and I'll let you decide uh, what you think about it. So the hazard ratio for men was 0.76 and for women was 0.38. For whites, it was 0.49 and for non-white, it was 0.87. For those with uh, systolic blood pressure less than 140, 
90 it was 0.94 and for those with a systolic blood pressure greater than 140 90 it was 0.42 and lastly for those with a hemoglobin a1c less than 7 it was 0.94 and those with a hemoglobin a1c greater than 7 it was 0.51 so it sort of seems that you know those who had uncontrolled blood pressure those who had uncontrolled glycemia there seemed to be a greater benefit in those subgroups for uh, uncontrolled so x hormones or x chromosomes <laughs> <laughs> right and the x chromosomes okay. i don't know what to make of that yes yeah, so well so apparently there are sex related differences in the um, endothelin receptor expression i wish that matt were here to go through all this different science <laughs> with us so I'm trying to um, pick up some of it but there is a big dichotomy and if you block the receptor the A receptor so receptor A you end up with more activation of receptor B and that actually has been shown to be more protective in females. Wow. So I don't know if that is also contributing to some of that ha- difference in hazard ratio that you're seeing. And then this review article that we'll put in the show notes says more research in the sex dimorphism in the renal ET1 system will ensure better therapies. <laughs> so, but you know, it is kind of cool that we're seeing that at least in this trial. We can call these significant interactions even without the p-value, right? since the intervals don't cross over one they they exactly they some of them in the figure the forest plot they do seem to uh, it's not just crossing over one that they don't cross over each other yeah so they they look almost significant if not significant and like joel said it was with 184 events not with 425 so who knows what would have happened if that 425 events i wouldn't be surprised if the true differences you know if if they are seemingly visible even in right. an underpowered trial what we would see in a really properly powered trial so another um sex related difference i don't know if you are aware of there's not really a good publication or a very um rigorous study looking at this but there are reports of um testicular atrophy and uh, male infertility with this class of drug and that may also affect uh whether patients would want to be on it. Um there were some secondary outcomes that I didn't mention just wanted to briefly touch on that. Samir, can, can I ask about one particular? Can we talk about the uh the patients that did not respond? So the patients did not get a lowering of proteinuria. They also had an uh, they also received benefit from the drug, is that right? Um yeah, so actually it's a supplement table uh table 2 um which shows some of the endpoints um and the rate of GFR change in the non-responders. Um I don't have the primary outcome in front of me. Um but for the the time to 50% reduction in GFR uh was um not different between the two groups and actually none of these secondary endpoints in GFR change were different between the two groups for the non-responders. So that reducing proteinuria did not result in more the drug was not more effective in the people that reduced the proteinuria, is that right? Correct. And also for the uh primary outcome for the non-responders, again no difference between the placebo and treatment group. Now, if I remember correctly, the people that had higher proteinuria, the people that didn't reduce their proteinuria, did have worse outcomes. Like it was predictive of those people doing worse, but it didn't predict whether the drug worked in those patients. They still got an advantage from being on the endothelin antagonist. And as you look at figure 4, panel A, um the there's the curves are basically on top of each other. Hazard ratio is 0.75 with a p of 0.08. So there seems to be perhaps some benefit, but it's it's you know either there is no benefit or if there is any benefit it's lower as right. we would expect. Uh, but when they actually did the analysis of all patients combined together responders and non-responders, you do see that difference again. So what happens now? What do we think? 
I think I think Joel put it nicely is that you know I I do think these drugs do something you know and unfortunately this trial is not definitive enough to convince anyone that we should start using these drugs and I think that's sad because there truly may be some signal in some patients but there's so much noise that it's it's hard to decide yeah, there's some interesting basic science data looking at uh, the role of uh, endothelial receptor in podocytes and there's a couple papers we can share in the show notes showing that when you knock the receptor out from podocytes it's protective from diabetes induced glomerulosclerosis as well as reduced uh, loss of the endothelial glycocalyx um, but i think the side effects are a little bit too much to look away from yeah this drug this drug seems quite dangerous, even in a population that was really highly selected. But it, it does feel like this is a promising, unique pathway to protect kidneys from diabetic disease. And I, and I hope it's not abandoned completely, even though it sounds like this compound, uh, Abavi, is uh, abandoned. Yeah, maybe, you know, the vascular and podocyte crosstalk is something that needs to be teased out more in terms of delivery and targeting this pathway. Because certainly there are these uh, receptors on podocytes. And so if you block it, you may be, you know, helping out with the actin cytoskeleton and podocyte integrity. But then you also have to address what's going on with the lymphatics and the microcirculation. And so if you are activating the B receptors and blocking lymphangiogenesis and perhaps lymphatic system, you're going to have problems with edema and vascular leak. It may not be that the pathway is bad, specifically in podocytes, but we're just not delivering it correctly. There are other ongoing trials, right? So there's the precision trial in the resistant hypertension. There is the uh, Sparsentan, uh, which is a dual ARB endothelial antagonist in F- FSGS. I think it's in, in some GN. Um, and and uh, there may be some other trials also that are going on. So so endothelial antagonists are not completely dead. I, I think there is still some uh, hope for people who are, you know, hardcore uh, and like uh, people have alluded, there is so much of basic science uh, suggesting that, you know, these things do have a role. We just have to find the right niche and the right way of doing it. So this was the first study that, a uh, big study that, I, that I've read that had this kind of enrichment step. Do we think we're going to see a lot more of these? Is this going to be, is this the, kind of the first of a, of a trend? Are we going to have to start to uh, adjust our expectations with this type of study design in the future? So there is, um, um, again, I'll link it to the show notes. Chirag Parikh and uh, Steve Koka have written a, a KI um, a paper in KI saying this is what we should do. So they, for example, the example they take is in acute kidney injury. Rather than taking all patients with acute kidney injury, you could use biomarkers uh, to stratify patients who, you know, to, to for an intervention rather than take all patients with uh, uh, acute kidney injury, some of which may be hemodynamic and where they not there may not be true tubular injury. I feel like I've cut my teeth on this demand that we use intention to treat analysis and that we take everybody that we've been administered the drug and we need to see if it works in that entire population so we don't falsely inflate the results by uh, removing patients that are having adverse events in the, from the drug. It just, it really rolls me the wrong way. It doesn't feel, it doesn't feel kosher to me. That is true. You know, that's what I said is that these trials look, uh, and it's even worse. Uh, so some of the examples I talk about is where they change the, you know, halfway through the design, halfway through the enrollment, they change the outcomes. They change the sample size. They say, hey, there seems to be a signal of benefit at the interim analysis where it is, you know, oh, there seems to be some signal. So let's enroll more patients. So we get a result that is positive. That seems like total uh, breaching all the intention yeah, to treat absolutely. principles. Uh, but there is, there is a fasc- there's a fascinating paper. I, I, I'll link it to show notes um, by Deepak Bat uh, in, uh, uh, in the New England where they talk about the firewalls because uh, 
if the investigators come to know that there is an effect you know they that may change their behavior in the patients that enrolling subsequently because let's say the sample size is 500 and it goes up to 750 then that that tells them that hey maybe there is a benefit that's why they're changing the sample size so let's enroll even more patients who perhaps may be less sick or whatever right so so that will uh, endanger the results of the trial so there are many theoretical thoughts and discussions about these kind of trials i wouldn't rule them out it's just that they need to be done very carefully and joel needs to stay I'm, awake i'm awake i'm i'm paying <laughs> close attention i'm i'm it's I'm, i'm turning you know it just feels like uh this is this was a big debate in the 90s during the hiv epidemic and there were a lot of trials on some of these antiviral drugs in which they did per protocol right these drugs were difficult to tolerate they were difficult to take they had patients that were non-compliant and they said well i just want to know if the drug works does this defeat the virus and so let's just take a look at the patients that are on drug and i think that movement got squashed and people were like no no it needs to be intention to treat it just kind of feels like we're kind of rerunning that same that same story again okay we're now done with the glomerular filtration st- segment of the podcast and we are on to our proximal tubular secretion jenny do you have a organic anion that needs to be secreted Yeah, so there were a couple things that kind of came up recently. I went on a trip to Fiji and it was a great vacation and I really came to know notice how little exposure I've had during my American training to global health and the impact of chronic kidney disease and ESKD worldwide. And one of the things about the Fijian people is that they are some of the friendliest people I've ever met, you know, anywhere. Some of the resorts that you stay in as a tourist are very very modern. They you seem like you know you're in a very fancy western hotel. Um but despite those resources, there's not adequate access to healthcare. And so um one of the things that came out from this was I sent out a tweet just kind of looking and started a thread, a tutorial so to speak, um looking at this and seeing that there really wasn't much literature about the prevalence of CKD and ESKD um in Fiji and there see, appears to be excess risk in that on in that nation compared to the surrounding islands in the South Pacific which is also interesting um the etiology's not clear and you know there's actually only one practicing nephrologist for the entire country which is also interesting to me and obviously there's a great need for access there and you know through all of this it was actually great to be able to interact with the only author of a population study of ckd in fiji through twitter and talk with him a little bit and we also have been communicating through dm where he really wants more people to get involved and to figure out what's going on in his country and there is now going to be a second nephrologist in the history of You're moving practicing nephrologist in fiji it's you're moving chenny's moving her lab again <laughs> yeah. <laughs> is that going to move my lab? We're going to do genetics there. <laughs> yeah, but you know she just got trained through an ISN fellowship, which is basically they go and do an externship somewhere else to learn nephrology and bring it back to their country. So I thought that was pretty cool. But yeah, there's just so much that needs to be done and it's something that, you know, we can get very siloed um in looking at kidney disease through whichever wherever we are currently especially in the developed nations but i thought that was kind of a cool interaction in terms of being able to learn something and actually interact with uh, the people who are involved in those studies um but that brings me to the second point that i had been thinking about in terms of being really inspired by uh, the paper from Steve Koka's group that we covered recently 
on hypernatremia and seeing, you know, we who see patients, we have a lot of questions that we want to answer, but not necessarily companies will pick up on it or, you know, it's hard to come by NIH funding to do it. But there is a way to crowdsource uh, funding for studies. And there's a website called experiment.com where people will actually pitch ideas uh, to micro, uh, Bill Gates or other benefactors and uh, come up with these ideas to fund. So I thought it would actually be kind of fun if people had ideas of like, is there a specific question that you see in the hospital that you wish someone would actually study, but we were able to collectively work on something together? And I'm actually thinking about putting in a bid. This was not for um, anything crowdsourced, but uh, putting in a bid to see if I could do a genotyping study for ESKD patients in Fiji and see, like, is there a Fijian version of APOL1 that we don't, that we're not aware of currently? Um, but it is kind of cool to see that there are these other resources and science is getting a little bit more democratized uh, where we could potentially try to make a difference. Excellent. Excellent. I'm looking forward to your next trip to Fiji. Take me. <laughs> Samira, you got a, a organic anion that needs to be transported in the proximal tubule? Uh, I'll just end with my usual. An apple a day keeps the nephrologist away. That's my anion for today. That's your anion for today. Swap, what do you got? So a couple of things. One is uh, I had... I had Swapnil here is talking about Vinay Prasad. He, he has a podcast called The Plenary Session. So there's a, a lot of monologues in there, which I don't necessarily like. But he has a nice monologue in one of his recent podcasts about the use of Twitter. And he does go on saying, you know, don't look at your followers. Don't look at what you do as being what you do. What, what is it that you do that gains you more followers and interactions? If I can quote Sanskrit, uh, there is a, a Sanskrit shloka in the Gita, which says, you know, Karmanne Vadikaraste Mak which means do what you should do. Don't look at the fruits of what you're doing, of your labor. And that's sort of what you should be, I think you should be doing with social media. The other thing he talks about is also very important, sort of channeling Chris Anderson. He he was the founding editor of Wired magazine, I think. He had a book called The Long Tail saying with the internet, if you have a product that has got a very niche market, the marketplace of the internet allows you to connect with those people who want your niche product, right? And the same thing here is, is social media is like a marketplace of ideas. So maybe you're the one person who knows how placebo capsules are made up and you can bring that knowledge to the table and there will be, uh, you know, uh, some people who will want to know that and they will appreciate the knowledge that you bring in. So so stick to your strengths uh, and you don't need to opine on, you know, what uh, politics, or sports or whatever. Yeah, that is fun. That's very social. But everyone else is also talking about it, right? So if you want to know about politics, why would I listen to Joel Toff? I would much rather listen to, uh, you know, Ezra Klein or, or uh, you know, someone like that. I think we, we and Neff Twitter are doing a pretty good job of it, right? I think Neff Twitter, I, I think Neff Twitter so. is a perfect yeah. example of long tail, right? Like this is, we have conversations that you wouldn't be able to have in any kind of normal social group. It's only when a bunch of nephrologists all over the world meet in social space that you can have this type of uh, cohort. Absolutely. And what is your, I don't know if we could. One of the things that's been really enjoyable about putting together Freely Filtered has been kind of playing with the editing and the audio and removing ums and, and, and sentences that don't go anywhere and trimming that down and really trying to make a cohesive and logical uh, podcast from the stuff that we recorded in the raw, raw tape. Uh, one of the things that I've started adding is the little bell every time someone talks about table one. And, you know, 
Table one is like is super important for studies. Like if you break down, you know, the basic thing about all studies, it's uh, uh, who did we study, what did we do, and what happened. And when we talk about who we studied, we have two ways, of, two great ways of talking about that. One is the table one, which goes through the demographics, and the second one is the the figure one, which goes through how did we get this particular cohort? How did we go from everybody we screened to the people that were excluded, people that had adverse events, people that weren't randomized, or what have you, to the patients that were ultimately randomized. And then also, oftentimes, it'll talk about uh, what happened, what were the outcomes of those patients, all in that figure one, which is a great kind of tail of the tape. And so that's a great way of kind of summarizing the who. And we also, for what ultimately happened, we have the, the drum roll sound. And uh, we don't have any cool sounds yet for uh, what we did. But I think I think I kind of want to start to build a uh, kind of a sound library of little sound icons that identify what part of the study that we're talking about. And I, you know, I need to be careful. Like, I don't want it to be like the morning zoo radio show with fart sounds, and et cetera, every time uh, something happens. But I think a few of these kind of little mementos to kind of make sure you know where you are and where we're talking about, it'd be helpful. So that's what I wanted to talk about. And if anybody has any suggestions of sounds or bloops or what have you for these different parts, I'd be happy to hear them. I think applause for generalizable. <laughs> That's what I was going to say. Generalizability. And booze when Joel cannot say it. Did you hear me just say? Did you hear me say generalizability without even. Did I stutter? Oh, wow. You did not. I think you've been practicing. I look in the mirror every morning and say, You're smart enough. You're good looking enough. You can say generalizability. And I pull it off. 